Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Toward the end of Homer's Odyssey, a newly returned Odysseus dines in secret in his own home, surrounded by the suitors, a group of vulgar men who for the past decade had been trying to steal his life. Disguised as a beggar, Odysseus watches with disgust as the men shamelessly stuffed themselves on meat and wine, blissfully unaware of the true identity of the stranger who sits among them and what he plans to do to them when suddenly the prophet Theoclymenus interrupts the banquet to deliver his fateful words to the unsuspecting suitors. There is a shroud of darkness drawn over you from head to foot. Your cheeks are wet with tears. The air is alive with wailing voices. The walls and roof beams drip blood. And the gate of the cloisters and the court beyond are full of ghosts trooping down into the night of hell. And with that their fates were sealed in what is perhaps one of literature's most famous and brutal premonitions. Though the idea of prophecy was common among many ancient cultures throughout the world, Homer's use of it in Odyssey, produced sometime around 800 BCE, is one of the first times such an act had been written about. Traditionally, supposed prophets and seers are individuals believed to have been gifted with a unique connection to the divine, individuals that can communicate with the gods or tap into nature's hidden frequencies in order to deliver portentous visions of the future. Sometimes the apparent visions arrive instantaneously, delivered as if by lightning, fully formed into the seer's mind's eye. Other times, divination might be employed the prophecies carefully deciphered from the scattering of bones or runes. Or sometimes, a message might merely be read in the language of the world around them. An eagle tearing a pigeon apart, as in the case of Homer's Odyssey, for example, becoming the omen of a god's will. 
all such methods, aside from contradicting all scientifically accepted laws of the universe, would require a level of skill or understanding unknown to the average layperson. However, there is one place in which many, regardless of their level of skill or understanding, believe they are granted access to the power of premonition in their dreams. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. As Aristotle pointed out, as far back as the 4th century BCE, in his treatise on prophesying in dreams, perhaps it is merely because so many believe their dreams to possess a special significance that we are minded to give them that significance. Either way, whether we believe it to be true or not, since most of us experience them, the notion that somehow with our dreams we possess the power to know and perhaps alter future events remains a potent one. Today, at institutions such as the Kessler Parapsychology Unit at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, the notion of precognitive dreaming tends to be viewed as little more than an illusion created by a combination of confirmation bias and selective recall. However, it may be surprising to know that not that long ago, there were a number of credible academics who took the notion of such things very seriously indeed. One in particular, the psychiatrist Dr John Barker, having spent a number of years in the 1960s studying incidences of apparent predictive dreams, eventually became convinced that such events were, in fact, not unusual at all. In 1967, Barker even went as far as setting up his own premonitions bureau in the hope that by collating people's dreams of impending tragic events, it might be possible to prevent them from taking place. It was a plan that had its seeds in a series of peculiar occurrences that came to light in the wake of one of the United Kingdom's greatest tragedies of recent memory. A story that begins in 1966 in the valleys of South Cymru. Mummy, I'm not afraid to die, said Errol May, absent-mindedly watching the rain as it bucketed down outside the living room window. Whatever do you mean? asked her mother, more than a little unnerved by her daughter's matter-of-fact tone. It certainly wasn't the sort of thing you expected a ten-year-old child to say, let alone one usually so bright and affable. In an effort to change the subject, her mother offered her a lollipop, but for once, Errol May had no interest in taking it. I'm not afraid because I'll be with my friends, Peter and June, she said, before heading off to play in her bedroom, leaving her mother stunned and confused as to what on earth her daughter had been talking about. In October 1966, Errol May lived with her family in the village of Avavan, along the banks of the River Taff in South Cymru. Known as a pit village, Avavan was established in the late 19th century, primarily to service the Merthyr Vale colliery, where many of the village's few thousand residents continued to work. Coal had been the lifeblood of the region for decades, 
having become a vital component in the ravenous Ouroboros of industrial revolution, feeding the flames to smelt the iron to make the machines that used the coal that fed the flames to make the machines, and so on and so on. By the late 1960s, however, with increasing competition from more efficient sources of energy, the British coal industry was in steep decline. Not that you would have known it if you were to visit southern Cymru at the time, where mines like Merthyr Vale had so far managed to avoid the downturn. Evidence of just how dominant the industry was in the livelihood of Aberfan could be seen in the black rainwater that rushed through the streets during the heavier downpours to the coal-smudged faces of the 800 or so men who emerged from out of its pit each day, to the vast towers of spoil that loomed over the village to the west. Taken from the French word, espoilier, meaning to seize by violence, these gigantic obsidian mounds were comprised largely of shale and any other waste materials removed in the process of mining, plundered from its natural habitat in the bowels of the earth, and piled perilously high above ground, where it didn't belong. There were seven in total, with the largest stretching some 80 metres into the air, steadily turning the lush green valley into a mountain of black. Not that Errol May or any of the other children in the village minded too much, for the black stuff was all they had known. Some would even sneak off to play on the spoil tips, or in the blackened streams that flowed steadily from underneath them. Not even rain would deter them. By mid-October in 66, it had been raining solidly for near on two weeks. At times like those, with the slate-grey clouds hanging so low and heavy over the tips, it could feel as if the whole world might be about to turn grey, and something, it seemed, was stirring. It was two weeks after ten-year-old Errol May's peculiar talk of death that she was startled awake by a terrifying nightmare. Later that morning, she attempted to relay the details to her mother, but she didn't want to hear it. Not now, she said, preferring to concentrate on getting her daughter ready for school. But Mummy, insisted Errol May, you have to listen. Fine, but make it quick, she replied. You're going to be late. Well, said Errol May, searching for the best way to describe it, I dreamt that I went to school, but there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. Later that night, barely a street away from Errol May's home, eight-year-old Paul Davis was at the living room table, drawing while his mother did the ironing in front of the TV. It was only after her son had gone to bed as she packed away his things, that Paul's mother got a proper look at what he had been drawing. From what she could make out, it was a picture of the village, with the peaked spoil heaps rising up behind it. Little stick figures holding shovels were dotted all about, while in the sky, Paul had drawn a plane with the letters NCB for National Coal Board written on the side. Then, Paul's mother was drawn to something odd in the top right-hand corner. Just two words, spelling out, the end. Thinking little more of it, 
Paul's mother tucked the picture inside a dresser drawer, along with the rest of her son's crayon masterpieces. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Later that night, just over a hundred miles away in a church in Plymouth, 47-year-old Carolyn Miller was preparing to share a recent vision with her fellow spiritualists. As one of the group's more prominent members and a self-described medium, Miller was a regular contributor to these private circle meetings, as she called them. On this occasion, however, she seemed more agitated than usual. It was terrible, she said, just an avalanche of black coal hurtling down a mountainside, and at the bottom this young boy staring up at it with a look of absolute terror on his poor face. Then suddenly there were tens, hundreds of people digging into a mound of rubble, and that boy again. He was alive, but his face full of so much grief. Sometime later, in the early hours of the following day, in Barnstable, halfway between Plymouth and Aberfan, 54-year-old Mary Hennessy tossed and turned in her sleep. Deep, somewhere within her mind, she found herself standing in a school corridor, peering into a nearby classroom. Inside, a small group of children appeared to be praying, and at the back of the room, what looked like a series of wooden bars or pieces of wood were sticking out of the ground. Then suddenly, the children began desperately trying to get through them to escape the room, but they were trapped. Moments later, she was outside the building, watching helplessly as others frantically scurried about the place, a look of abject horror on their tear-stained faces. Hennessy woke suddenly, gasping for breath, relieved to find herself safely at home in bed. She was so affected by the nightmare she called her son first thing and begged him to take extra special care with his daughters that day. But as she recounted the dream to him, she had a sudden realisation. Clearly, it wasn't about her grandchildren, since they were little more than babies. The children that she'd seen were schoolchildren. Back in Aberfan, on the morning of Friday, October 21st, though the rain had finally stopped, dawn revealed the village to be shrouded in a thick autumnal fog that rose high up into the valley. All about, as some made their ways home, 
tired and exhausted from night shifts, others were just beginning to stir in their beds. Eight-year-old Gaina Minette was roused from sleep by the sound of her mother preparing breakfast downstairs. Before long, she was down there too, sat at the table next to her seven-year-old brother Carl and ten-year-old sister Marilyn. The trio were all pupils at the village's Pantglass Junior School, unlike their older sister, who had since graduated to secondary school. However, all four of them were equally excited that morning, since it was the last day of term, with the promise of a full week's holiday ahead of them. A short time later, all dressed and ready to go, the children headed out into the street as Gaynor's mother waved them off from the front door, watching on as slowly, one by one, they disappeared into the fog. Out on the streets, children from all over the village were leaving their homes and making their way to school. Many knocking on neighbours' doors to collect their friends to make their journey together. Some stopping off at Anderson's tuck shop along the way to grab cola cubes and flying saucers. It was hard to keep track of everyone making their way along the street. The fog being so thick, they could barely see a metre in front of them but there was no mistaking the heavy scrape and clang of metal coming from the tram line to the north of the village as the waste carts, hidden somewhere in the fog, steadily made their way toward the top of tip number seven. No matter where you were in Aberfan, you could always hear the sound of those carts trundling along one after another as bucket load after bucket load of waste was driven out west and discarded onto those looming spoil heaps. Up at Pankglass Junior, on the northwestern edge of the village, 64-year-old head teacher Anne Jennings stood watch from the front steps as the school's 200-odd students emerged from out of the fog. Then, at 9am on the dot, the stern but much-loved Jennings rang the bell to summon them all inside. As the children filed into the assembly hall, inside one of the classrooms, newly installed deputy head, David Bainan, was prepping for the day's lessons. The 47-year-old Bainan had only moved to the village with his family that summer after taking on the job as deputy head, and he had loved every minute of it. In the main hall, Miss Jennings conducted a short assembly as the children sat cross-legged on the parquet floor before her. After finishing with a spirited rendition of all things bright and beautiful, she sent them on their way to class. But high up in those blackened hills, all the way through the fog to the top of Tip 7, something was off. Earlier that day, when one of the crane drivers had arrived for his morning shift, he noticed something peculiar. The tracks of the crane appeared to have sunk a little into the tip. And if he wasn't mistaken, it appeared as though the entire top of it was lower than usual. Back at Pankglass Junior, eight-year-old Gaynor took her place at a desk by the wall as her teacher, Mr Davies, set up his blackboard by the window. The classroom was one of three at the back of the school that looked out directly onto the face of tip number seven. In the classroom beyond the wall to her right, were Mr. Bainan and the nine to ten-year-olds, 
including her sister Marilyn, along with Errol Mae Jones and her two best friends, Peter and June. And in the classroom to the left were sat the seven to eight-year-olds, including her younger brother, Carl. With it just gone ten past nine, Gaynor and her classmates were watching patiently as Mr Davies drew up some math problems on the blackboard, when a few of them became aware of a distant rumble. Gaynor looked out of the window, straining to see where on earth it might be coming from, but saw only the thick fog at the bottom of the hill. Having by then heard it too, Mr Davies reassured the children that it was only thunder, only the thunder was getting louder. Then the lights, dangling from the ceiling, began to shake. It can't be, thought Mr Davies, as he ran to the window, peering desperately into the fog as that hideous sound grew louder and louder, his eyes widening in helpless, inescapable horror. It was shortly before 9.15am that the 80 metre high, spoil tip number 7, soaked through by two weeks of rain, collapsed under its own weight. With nothing in its way to stop it, a half a million cubic foot avalanche of wet slurry, soil and rock began cascading toward Aberfan village. Moving at a speed of 50 miles per hour, the 150,000 tonne mass first destroyed a farm along with its occupants before obliterating 18 homes and completely smothered Pankglass Junior School. As news of the collapse quickly spread, hundreds stopped what they were doing, grabbed shovels from gardens and raced immediately to help. Though the classrooms at the front of the school had survived the brunt of it, the three at the back had been so swamped by the spoil that nothing inside of them could be seen. All about, the ground was awash with thick black sludge as water gushed down from the hill and mixed with the coal dust. As anxious parents arrived to inspect the damage, many assumed the children had been evacuated from the building, only to realise with horror that half of them were still trapped inside. Before long, the school was completely surrounded by villagers and emergency services alike, as they dug desperately at the mass to get them out. Others, in their anguish, began to claw at the muck with their bare hands. But for most of those still trapped under the rubble, it was already too late. Miraculously, eight-year-old Gaynor survived the disaster, having been pushed to the back of the classroom and trapped under a radiator that saved her from suffocating. She was found alive just after 9.30am, but her younger brother Carl and older sister Marilyn were not so lucky. In fact, Gaynor would be one of only ten children rescued from under the spoil, the last of them, her classmate Jeff Edwards, being pulled out at 11am. The rescue workers continued to work tirelessly throughout the day, where first they had heard cries from under the rubble they had very quickly fallen silent. A hundred and seven schoolchildren died that morning 
along with five teachers, including 21-year-old Mr Davies, head teacher Anne Jennings, and deputy head Mr Bainan, who, when his body was finally uncovered, was found to have been sheltering five of the children in his arms. 44-year-old Nancy Williams, a much-loved staff member who, like everyone else at the school, had come to see the children as her own, also died while trying to protect them. The Aberfan disaster was a national tragedy, uniting the country in grief. In total, 116 children and 28 adults lost their lives. Among them were 10-year-olds Errol May Jones and her friends Peter and June, as well as 8-year-old Paul Davies. It was only a few days after the disaster that strange stories of portents and premonitions apparently foretelling the event, began to emerge. Chief among them was Errol May's peculiar dream and the strange proclamation she is said to have made in the few days prior to the tragedy. It was two weeks later, when going through her son's things, that Paul Davies's mother came across that unusual picture he'd drawn, seeing its depiction of stick figures with shovels and the incongruous phrase, the end, in an entirely new light. And soon, other stories would emerge too. News of premonitions of a different kind. With an entire nation demanding to know how on earth such a tragedy had been allowed to happen, less than a week after it had occurred, a tribunal was established to investigate. Over the course of 76 days, with 136 witnesses interviewed, The buck was passed back and forth as representatives of the National Coal Board attempted to deflect any sense of responsibility for the disaster. Having carried out their own investigation into the catastrophe, the NCB claimed it to have been the result of an unknown natural spring that had steadily destabilised the tip from underneath, of which nobody could have been aware. Only this was a lie. The NCB had been well aware of the spring, but threatened by the increasingly competitive energy market, had elected not to incur the expense of moving the spoil tip somewhere else. Not only that, the same tip had even partially slipped only the year before. In fact, a petition raised by the mothers of some of the schoolchildren, expressly stating their concern about the streams and springs under Pit 7, had even been delivered to Merthyr County Borough Council that very same year, but nothing had come of it. As the tribunal ultimately concluded, with or without apparent precognitive dreams, it seems the disaster had been well foreseen, after all. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained, and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online 
at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.